All right then. Well, let me let me pray in closing today. Uh, I don't know if I can. I don't know if I can follow that. Um, hey, my name is Mark, and uh, I also want to welcome you to the Grove Church this morning. I honestly, this uh, this new series that we're starting about what it looks like to submit. I think it's hilarious that I get the draw to be the guy to start that because I feel like this is just an area that I have tremendous, uh, tremendous crazy weakness in, and. Um, and so it's funny, I, I do think that I've come to believe over time here at the Grove that the way when we're planning out the calendar and the way that it falls that, you know, somebody ends up speaking on one date and there's this one passage or this one topic that it doesn't just happen by accident. Um, it seems like a lot of times it falls that it's the thing that I get most convicted about. This last one when we talked about Genesis chapter 12 and about Abram, you know, going down to Egypt and having to lie about his wife. It's crazy. I mean, over the last few weeks, there have been two different times, several more times than this, just in the conviction and the things that I learned from it, but there have been two different times that it came up in, I mean, I've never heard a message on that. I never really studied it before we we did that Sunday, and, you know, at two different times, somebody else brought it up, and it was like this discussion that needed to be had on some things that come out from that passage. And the second time it happened, I just thought, man, this is just wild. Like, man, how does that even? So, so I do think that it falls, and this one today it seems to be, it just get, kind of makes me giddy because it's kind of funny. Like, I, I know this is bad. I mean, this is how bad it is. I'll just give you a few examples. Uh, we live uh, up in Springdale um, near uh, the, the high school and the, in West Springdale, the high school and the, and the middle school and the elementary school. They're all kind of on a road together. And, you know, we've got uh, Brennan's at the middle school, and Caleb's now at the high school, and, and the twins are at the, uh, at the elementary school. And, in fact, so Brennan, all through the fall, has also run cross-country early in the morning over at the junior high. And so what I'm, what I'm getting at, this road that runs right beside those, I mean, on a day that I've got most of the job of getting kids to places, I mean, I may cross up and down that road, you know, two or three times, Right? Well, there's a neighborhood right across from the high school, and some of the folks that maybe live up there, you're probably going to know exactly where I'm going with this. There's a neighborhood that's right across there, and there's a, maybe it's just me, though. But there's a, a walkway, and, um, and once or twice in the time that we've lived here, there's actually been somebody crossing when I came. I'm sure they crossed more than that, but once or twice they have. Now, all along, there has been a sign that says 20 miles an hour when children are present. And all along, I have honored that, right? I don't, I don't want to run over any kids. I, I, I appreciate that, you know, that's good. And so I try to get close to 20. Now, getting close to 20 is difficult. That's a, you know, normally that's like 40, and you drop down to 20. Y'all know what dropping from 40 to 20 feels like, right? Feels like bamboo shoots underneath your fingernails. But I've done it, you know, I've made it work, and, you know, I've, I'm always trying to slow down. But evidently, they had some people that weren't slowing down because now there's a guy that stands by this sign. Now, he's not a police officer. He's, uh, he's an elder. I'll kind of give you the picture. He's an elderly guy. He's got long gray hair pulled back in a ponytail. He's got a, uh, an orange vest on to protect himself, uh, which he probably needs to. And he's got a sign that's a stop sign and a slow sign, and he stands out there and to stop the traffic. But because there's not normally people walking that he actually stops out on the road, most of his job is to stand by that sign, the 20-mile-an-hour the sign. 
And the dude's got some kind of sixth sense, like he can see you coming, and he knows if you're like 20.5. Points up at the sign, gives you this look like, are you really going to go more than 20? To which, you know, it just starts to kind of grate at you. So I've gotten to where that just, it boils my blood, man. And so I kind of look back at him and, yeah, yeah, I'm going to go 20.5. I may go 22. I, I, I honestly, my heart, I want to, uh, it happened this week where it happened more than once. And I think he had spotted my car now as the 20.5 guy instead of the 19 guy. And so he was just kind of staring me down. And everything in me wanted to, like, drift up on the sidewalk, <laughs> scream obscenities out the window. I mean, I want to just drive my foot through the floorboard and just, you know, go 40, just, just to, to spite. Now, do I disagree with the rule? No, I'm, I'm total agreement with the rule. I just don't like this dude looking at me and kind of giving me the idea that I'm doing something wrong. I think I struggle really bad with this. Yesterday, so our life now, we've got... Uh, the two older boys wrestle, and wrestling season has just started, and it'll go through February, so just about every Saturday, we're going to be somewhere. Yesterday, we were in Muskogee, Oklahoma, and at these tournaments, you've got, they're in, you know, they're in the basketball gym, so you've got the stands, and that's where the family and wrestlers that aren't wrestling, anybody but coaches and the guys on the mat are supposed to be in the stands, but nobody, really stays in the stands. I mean, when your kid's wrestling, you want to get close and kind of video and be there and, you know. And, uh, and so yesterday, uh, me and Darcy are down right beside the mat coloring Mickey, uh, pic- Mickey Mouse pictures while the wrestling's going on. And about every 15 minutes, somebody comes over the loudspeaker and says, hey, only coaches and wrestlers on the mat, parents in the stands. And me and Brandon kind of look over at each other and go, <laughs> me and Darcy just keep on coloring. I mean, there's that the part of me almost makes me want to, inside of me makes me want to stay more just because the rule's there. So I struggle with this. And I don't know if anybody else that drives that street up in Springdale has a problem. Maybe it's just me. But uh, as we walk through this series, I think there's a lot of conviction and things that I just need to work on in me. And the core verse that we're going to look at is Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. And this is, uh, I mean, when you're doing Bible study and you're like picking, is this an exhortation? Is this something that he's suggesting? Or is this a command? I mean, this is Paul. And I don't think you can get around the fact that this is just a command from Paul. And he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's short and sweet, so let me me read it again. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Which seems like he's saying this submission is just a a way of life for a a true Christ follower. It's just the way it goes. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Who is this one another person? I mean, is there somebody specific that we're talking about? If you go on and continue to read what Paul is talking about here, he, he talks about the relationship between husband and wife. Then he talks about the relationship between parents and their children. And then he talks about the relationship between uh, slaves and their masters. And you get the feel that this isn't an exhaustive list. I don't think he's talking about any specific relationship. It feels like he's saying, hey, the one another is, 
hey, the, the, peop- the peoples that are around you that you do life with and bump into, like, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And, uh, and this submission would be real easy to kind of make a, a program. You know, I, I found out that through time being involved in a lot of different churches that that's what churches and church people like to do with things like this. We like to make a program out of it. So every Tuesday at, from 6 to 7, we're going to have submission class, and we're all going to come together, and we're going to do this thing, and, we're gonna, and then we're going to go out and do normal life because that's actually wacky. We're not going to actually do it all the time. It's not a way of life. It's just something that we, that we program, you know, we, we turn into a program. But that doesn't seem like what he's talking about. He says we, it, it, it feels more like a, a way of life. Uh, I've always I've seen this a lot of times with discipleship. Uh, several churches I've been a part of have come out and said, "Man, we want to make a we want to have a discipleship program where everybody can can have somebody that's helping them grow and that they have this mentoring relationship." So yes, we're going to do that every Wednesday night from six to eight. Well, I, I'll, I'll always listen for a while to the program and see all the materials, and then at some point I feel like I have to just go, "Hey, it's, it's not going to work." And I've I watched it. It always goes for a while, and then just train wrecks. And why? Well, the, the guy I've told you about, this guy, Tim, that spent time with me and mentored me, uh, it, it, it just didn't look like that. I mean, this, this guy got involved in my life. It was very, it was very organic. He, he, he adjusted his schedule to match with, with mine. So at that time, Terry and I had just gotten married. I was, it was fall, and I was playing football, and, and I only had, the only section of time I had was Friday night about 9 p.m., because that's when all the other guys had to be in curfew in the dorm. But since I was married and you know, off campus, I, I kind of could skip out on that. And so he oriented his life around Friday night at 9 p.m. I would go to his house, and we would spend a few hours studying the Bible together. That's not a program. That's like he just adjusted his, his life. I mean, you, know, you guys know. I mean, giving up Friday night from 9 to 11, 12 o'clock, that's a, that's a pretty big ask. But he just did it because it was who he was. And that's the way this looks. If submission is going to be something that we do, it's going to be something that we embrace as a way of life, not just some other discipleship or some other program that we're going to run in. And so there's, there's this idea. A submissive way of life means a, a core shift, not just the outside things, but deep inside of us, a core shift from an arrogant me, self-centered point of view to a very humble, others-centered point of view, a total shift in our perspective. And so I'm even going to close today by saying, hey, I, I don't know that what we're talking about, at least in my world, this isn't something that I go, yes, yes, and come down to the altar and say, man, it's... I think that's the reason this needs to be a series, and we probably need to be talking about it a lot because there's something deeper that has to happen inside of us. So what's the motivation? He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So what's driving this submission is this, this reverence for Christ. Some, of, uh, some versions, some translations use fear of Christ. Uh, you, could, you could translate respect for Christ, uh, this sense of awe of who Jesus is and what he did then drives our submission to one another. Reverence for him. And when I think about things that I, I'm driven by the reverence for, 
You know, I've been in several spots lately where the national anthem was played. Yesterday at this wrestling tournament, Darcy's standing beside me, and she's just, she's four. She's just now old enough to kind of get, all right, whoa, hold up. Everybody's, everybody's, what are they doing? Everybody's doing this. And she's, she started to try to do it, but she didn't know that we were facing the flag. She just knew you were supposed to put your hand over your heart. So I kind of had to turn her back around, okay, the flag's over here, and then, and then kind of bend down and, and sing the song with her so she could kind of, oh, okay, this is what we're doing, and then explain a little bit about what we were doing. That there's this reverence for this flag and what it stands for and the men who gave up their life to protect our freedoms, and there's this, this thing that happens that, man, I, I stop what I'm doing. In fact, this last week I was so proud of my boy Brennan. He uh, we, we had to leave after one football game that he was at, and the next game was starting, but we had to leave. And so he had his, his pads and all of his bags, and he was running, and we were in the parking lot behind the stadium, and the, and the national anthem started. And I saw him look up at me like, uh-oh. I mean, do I, do I stop or do I keep running? And he stopped, and he dropped all his bags, and he knew we were late, and he knew I was going to be upset that we were late. At the same time, he knew, he knew I better stop. And so he turned around and, and sang the national anthem. I, the other day, we were working the concession stand underneath the stands, and it's this real awkward moment. Have you ever been in that spot? The national anthem started playing, and you can tell everybody's like, like do I buy my M&Ms? Do I wait to buy my M&Ms? And everybody did kind of stop and turn where we thought the flag was on the other side of the stands. For, for the national anthems. Out of reverence for all the things behind that flag, we, we stop and we take this moment to recognize it. Uh, another example, my, uh, my grandfather, I've told you before, my mom's dad, his name's Clyde Griffin. Uh, two men really in my life that have a massive influence, Clyde Griffin and my dad's, my uncle, who actually raised my father, his name's Thad Donahoe, but both of these guys, big influence in my life. Well, Clyde Griffin was a car guy, but, um, but I don't know that it was just that he was a car guy. I just think the time that he, you know, he lived in, that you chose a car brand, and you were loyal to it. You may know what I'm talking about. I mean, if you're a Chevy guy, you're a Chevy guy. If you're a Ford guy, you're a Ford guy. And if you're a Chevy guy, which my granddad was a Chevy guy, like Ford people, mm-hmm. I mean, they're all right, but I wouldn't trust them. You know, I wouldn't go into business dealings with them. I mean, you can be friends, but you got to kind of keep them at a distance, you know. And I just kind of grew up in a house that that's, that's the way it was. I mean, they're not just not very smart if they're choosing a Ford. And so it's deep inside our family. It's always kind of been a joke, but not really. I mean, like it's... And so, for instance, like the last car purchase we made... I went to this buddy of mine who's a car dealer and actually is a Ford guy, but I gave him a chance. I knew he could get cars other than Fords. But sure enough, he brings me this Explorer. And it's an older model. It's exactly what I asked for, older model. Price was incredible, um, low mileage. It was big enough, it was an, it was big enough to, to do everything we wanted to do. And he, he pulled it out. I'm like, dude, what are you doing? Bring me an Explorer? I mean, I appreciate the effort, but I can't drive an Explorer. He said, man, just... Just drive it home. Think about it, because this is, this is a great buy. And All right, whatever. So I drive it home. And Terry, even though she didn't grow up in our family, she walks out of the house, she sees it, and she's like, you can't drive an Explorer. You can't, you can't drive a Ford. What are you thinking? And I took it back to the dude, and I said, man, it's everything. But I, I can't get up in the morning and walk out 
and see a Ford sitting in my driveway and not feel like my granddad is just going to scold me the whole time I'm driving. I just can't. I can't, I can't do it. I, it's not, it's not going to happen. When I was in high school, uh, my best, one of my best friends, his granddad, whose name was Dick Green, no joke, and this guy was a wild man that had all kinds of stories. He was legendary, right? I mean, he, he had a plane that he would drive underneath the bridge out at the lake, and he would get tickets for it, but he would just keep on doing it because that just was fun to him, I guess. And he had a Harley that I watched this happen, him go across the, the main road over the overpass in town, standing on the seat, just balancing on his Harley across the, across the overpass. Well, I got to know this guy, and he was a Ford guy. And when he found out I was a Chevy guy, he said, I don't like you. And uh, he told his grandson, I wouldn't hang out with that guy. Really, I wouldn't. And so one day, we're out. I've got this uh, S10 Blazer, and he's got this little Ford Ranger. And I'm driving out on the highway out to his house. And I don't see him coming, but all of a sudden, I look over to my left, and here's Dick Green and his Ford Ranger, topped out, going to pass me. Now, what do I do at that point? Clyde Griffin is in, my, is in my soul and he's in my foot at that moment. And I, I mean, I give it everything that it's got. We run, scolding as fast as we can go. We come up to the curve and I edge him out. And then we get to the house and he steps out of, the, out of his ranger, which is about to blow up at that point. <laughs> and uh, he looks over at his grandson and he says, this guy's all right, you can hang out with him. <laughs> Somehow, somehow that word is respect. What's so funny about this is Heidi Lofton is from the, the same place that I'm from in the first service she was in here. And afterwards she grabbed me and she said that she was uh, in, involved in some leadership thing in high school. And they asked her to travel around to the towns around our hometown to teach about that and invite students to it. And she said she was at one of those towns and she did the presentation. And she said, does anybody have any questions? And the first question that was asked, are you a Ford or a Chevy girl? No joke. She says she said, I'm a Honda girl. And everybody just said, we're not even going to listen to this girl. What are you? Uh, but there's this compulsion out of reverence for my grandfather. This is just who I am. Well, this says out of reverence for our Jesus. This is just who we are. This is what you do. Now, why? What, what's the reverence for Jesus? Well, man, I mean, he gave up his life for us. He modeled this picture of submission. The one who was on the throne in heaven would give up that, would come to earth, would live as a human, would would be treated the way that he was treated and brutally murdered for us. Out of reverence for him, we submit to one another. I (laughs) I may not like you. You may not like me. But this question of submission isn't whether I like you it's about that I love Jesus, and out of reverence for him, I, I submit. Uh, there's two big quotes that stick out to me regarding this, and they're, they're two of these, from these two guys in history that just did incredible things for the kingdom of God. One was a guy named C.T. Studd, and C.T. Studd said this. He said, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. And I've shared that with you before, and I probably will a hundred more times because I just think it's huge. If, he be, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. The other is by a guy named, <laughs> catch this, Count Ludwig von Zinzendorf. All right, anybody heard of him? He's a guy that 
that led the uh, Moravian movement, which you just need to go look that up because it's just one of those things that happened in history that's just uh, incredible. But uh, what, what prompted uh, this dude to, to do all the things that he did, he was at this, guy, this art museum. He was looking at this painting by an Italian artist. And, uh, and in fact, I've got it here for you. It's, uh, the name of the painting is, um, let's see if I can find it here. Behold the man. And so it's talking about here's, here's Jesus with the crown of thorns on his head, uh, beaten and bruised, this rope around his neck. And uh, what history says is uh, von Zinzendorf was just mesmerized and sat and looked at this. And when he left, his quote was, for the rest of his life, I have one passion, and it is he, only he. Basically, I'm going to orient my life around my love for, for him. Something about this painting gripped his heart in that way. Out of reverence for him, what do you do? Compelled to submit to one another. But then there's, there's more than that. I mean, there's the, the reverence, but then there's also just the model that Jesus gave us. I mean, Jesus gives us this, this picture of what it looks like to submit. Uh, at the end of each one of the Gospels, we kind of get this account where Jesus shares this Passover meal with his disciples in this borrowed room. And then while they're at the table, one of the Gospels talks about in Luke that, that the guys at the table, the, the disciples, they get in this fight. And the fight is about who among them is the greatest. And so they're mouthing back and forth, talking smack. And then Jesus says, Luke twenty-two twenty-seven, who is more important? The one who sits at the table or the one who serves? So how do you answer that question? Who's the most important? The one that's sitting or the one that's serving the one that's sitting? And he, he answers it. He says, yeah, the one who sits at the table, of course. I mean, that's the way we look at things. That's the way humans are. The one at the table is the one that's greater than the one that's serving. But then he says... But not here. I love it. Jesus gives recognition to the fact that that's the way normal things happen. I get that, boys and girls. But that's not the way it is here. For those who follow me, that's not what it looks like. We run by a whole different set of rules. There's a higher level of living that we know about. That might be the way it normally is, but fellas, not here. It actually reminds me of, uh, of that movie, The Miracle, you know? Where you got that story about the, the, the U.S. hockey team and the Soviets, and the Soviets are you know, obviously better and should win, and Kurt Russell comes into the room you know, and he gives the speech. Anybody give the speech? Somebody could probably give the speech. But this one part, of it, basically he says, you know, hey, guys, you're out, man. And he says, man, out of ten games, they'd beat you nine. But not today. Not here. This is the one. Feels like Jesus goes, yeah, that might be the normal way that it is, everybody, but not here. Not in my kingdom. Not when I'm on the throne. That's not what it looks like. So then he, uh, he walks with his guys to the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing full well what was coming, right? He steps out, and they're walking with him, and he, he asks them to wait, and he finds a place by himself to pray. And then look what he prays in, in Matthew 26 
39. It says, My father, if it's possible, let this cup of suffering be taking, taken away from me. I mean, I, Father, I'm not looking forward to this thing that's coming. I know it's going to be bad. I don't, I don't want this. There's this, this struggle that takes place. Yet, I submit to you, Father. I want your will to be done, not mine. And then he goes back to the guys, and they've all fallen asleep. How about you? At that point, I'd be like, hey, I'll take that back. I ain't about to die for these guys. But he comes back, and he antes up even more. He says, Father, if this cup cannot be taken away unless I drink it, meaning the crucifixion that he was getting ready to endure, your will be done. So Jesus models this submission to God's will and the greater purpose of, of us than even his you know, pain and suffering. Then Jesus, walk, I mean, Judas walks into the garden with this huge crowd of guys with swords and sticks. And he goes up and he kisses Jesus, which was the sign he had given to everybody that the guy that I kissed, that's the one that you need to arrest. And uh, when they go to lay hands on Jesus, Peter pulls out a sword and he lops off the ear of one of the guys. Now, let's think about this. this is like, you know, Charles talks about the flannel graph. I don't think this was a real clean picture, right? I mean, I don't, I don't think he was like, all right. Here, here's some painkiller. Let's, let's take a little, right, right there. Is that too much? No. I mean, he, he caught the ear, but that means he was going for the head, right? And he was bringing the sword with uh, a lot of zeal and enthusiasm, okay? And, and so the ear goes off, and then, this is just a cool part, you know, Jesus picks up the ear and puts it back on. That's a cool party trick, man. And so the ear's back on, and Jesus says in uh, 2652, Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you not think, uh, do you think I cannot call on my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legion Legions of angels. So a legion uh, was like a Roman guard of about 6,000. So 12 legions, we're talking about 72,000. And he says more than 72,000. And I, again, I don't think that's exhaustive. I think he just threw out a number. Basically, man, what are you pulling out your puny sword for and swinging it around? Dude, you, you, you don't get it. If I want to stop this, if we're going to have a fight here, I win. But this isn't a fight. This is me submitting. I'm letting them take me. I can take over this situation anytime I want to. But I'm not going after what I want. I'm going after what you need. Put your sword down. I'm doing this. I got 72,000 plus waiting. But I'm not calling them right now. I don't need your help. This is the model that Jesus gives us. He's choosing it. And that's it. He's choosing what we need and what God is asking him to do above what he, what he wants. And really, as we go through this series, that's really what we're going to talk about a lot. What does it look like to give up what I want, to give somebody else what they need? But where I think it gets really fuzzy is if you, if you start to draw a line down a sheet of paper and you put the things that you actually need 
on one side and the things that you want on the other, other side, the things you'd be willing to, to sacrifice for the need of somebody else. I think this is a day that it gets really fuzzy, at least it does in my own heart, because we think we're entitled to a lot of things. We've moved a lot of things that, if we thought about it long at all, we know for sure are wants. But we've kind of let those things shift over to things that we think we need and that are our rights and that we're entitled to. Truth is, that need list is, is pretty short. And if somebody around us has a deficit there and they need something there, and it means the sacrifice of a want to, to make sure that they get what they need, then that's an obvious yes. You know, the, the best model that I've seen of this, uh, again, I, I am not the model, but, uh, but I have really seen some real clear glimpses of it in, uh, as I've watched uh, my wife, Terry, live. Because, like I was talking about last time, we, we had a lot of struggles early on, and one of the biggest struggles was what we were going to do with our life. And I had this vision that was a life that was lived, lived for something bigger than ourselves. You know, a, a life where there were no limits, uh, that the things that maybe nobody else was willing or wanting to do that we would sign up and go do. So I would come home with, <laughs> with some crazy ideas. Terry had a, another set of things that she really needed. She needed to be secure that we were going to be able to eat, that we were you know, probably going to have a, house, a roof over our head. And so I would come home with an idea, like uh, one of, the, one of the, the best. I came home, I'd watch the movie White Squall. Anybody ever seen that one with Jerry Bridges? If you haven't, you should. But anyway, he has this boat, and he and his wife, uh, they, they take the boat out in the ocean, and, and boys come, and they, they come on the boat with them, and they, they teach them and, and have school on the boat, and then they, they go to these islands and explore and learn, and the boat goes down. But besides that, it sounded like a really good idea. Now, I don't know how to sail, and Terry doesn't know how to sail, but I came in one day, and I'm like, I got it. Let's do that. Let, let's get a boat, and we'll, we'll you know, recruit guys to come ride the boat with us, and we'll do, like, you know, discipleship training while we're on the boat, and then we'll, we'll dock at, like, right in the middle of the Middle East, and then we'll, then after we're there for a while, then we'll go to another place, and then we'll, then we'll take this boat around the world, and when those guys come back, I mean, man, is that not the... And she's like, what? But at this point, we had been at this road for a while where she had said no, and then I would go, well, what's wrong with you? Well, you, you think Jesus won't take care of us? You think, you know, you don't care about the world? You don't, and we just end up in this fight. At this point, she had come to the, to the decision that, you know what? Yes. All right, let's get the boat. And you know what happened when she did that? I walked away and went, man, I don't know if that's going to be a very secure place for my wife and family. Man, how am I going to, I don't know how to sail. All the things that she would have said to me start reeling in my head, and I start to feel the weight of her trust and submission to me. I'm like, man, I better. And so I would come back and go, maybe I don't think that's a good idea. And she would say, well, I was kind of thinking that, but, you know. <laughs> and I started to figure out that there was this thing that she would, she would say yes, and then actually all the things that she wanted to say, all, all of a sudden I would, I would be saying them. And there was this beautiful picture of what it looked like. And I just learned from that. Instead of taking what she wanted, she began to give. 
And as we work through this series, we're going we're gonna to deal with all these different relationships that we have in our life and what it begins to look like practically. And so today, the action point, you know, we try to come up with something that's real specific. I think this is a big enough deal and a core enough issue for us that I'm going to challenge you over the next few minutes just to ask God to soften your heart to the possibility that the one who sits at the table may not actually be the one that's in the seat of honor. But that his model of putting others ahead of ourselves, when he says, but not here, here it's different, that that way of life is a way that everybody in the room gets fed. So if it's okay, let me, uh, let me just ask that he would do that in us. Father, I'm, I'm asking you that you would begin something in us today that would not just start and end today, but that it would begin something deep in us that over these weeks as we consider the different relationships in our life, that we would be challenged, uh, encouraged, that our reverence for you would increase so that we could uh, have your uh, power and compulsion to go out and to submit to one another. This is, a, this is a higher way, the way when you talk about life that is abundant and full, uh, that life that's abundant and full, the reason why we don't normally experience it is because decisions like this, things like this that don't make sense and yet at the same time, uh, it's the way that you made it to work when we put others ahead of ourselves. So Father, I ask that you would do that in us to your glory. Amen.